If you have your Bibles with you, if you would please open them to 1 Peter chapter 3. It is our privilege to be reading the very Word of God, inspired, infallible, and inerrant. I'm going to read the context of the particular portion that we're going to address. That context is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through the end of that chapter, which is verse 22. We will be focusing upon a particular admonition that Peter gives to us. It is our privilege to be reading the very word of God out of respect and reverence for the author of Scripture. Please stand for the reading of his word this morning. Finally, all of you have unity of mind Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For who desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the, righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, went safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let us pray. Father God, we do commit our time to you as we study your word. It, it, it is your word. 
Father, may we heed it. May we obey it. Not because we're earning our way to heaven. We could never accomplish that. But because of the Lord that is ours for the one who paid the price for us. And may our lives be lived that the name of Jesus would be exalted. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to look particularly at the phrase which comes in the middle, beginning in uh, verse 15, where Peter says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. I was here oh, a month or so ago, I guess, and uh, we began our work through the book of Peter. Uh, keep in mind that uh, this is uh, 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 Peter the Apostle uh, who writes this inspired portion of Scripture. Uh, keep in mind that he begins his book by telling these folks, these dear folks, that they're aliens. Uh, they are in a foreign land, that this is not their home. In other words, they have been called, they belong to the Lord, and therefore their home is in heaven. We just happen to be passing through until the Lord calls us home. And as we pass through, it's not that we're just taking up space, but that we're to impact the culture in which we live. We're to be salt. We're to be light, if you will. Uh, when you think about Jesus' discussion in the Sermon on the Mount, as he goes through what we refer to as the Beatitudes, he describes what a Christian is to be, and, and, and that's very different from what we hear the world proclaiming we're supposed to be. But it's at the end of the, bad, the, the Beatitudes, again describing what a believer is to be on this journey. And then he uses the illustration that by pursuing such characteristics, we will become salt. We will become light. In other words, we will have an impact upon the culture in which we live because of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our desire to serve him and him alone. But while we're going through this, we are exiles. We are sojourners. We are in, but we are not of. But Peter reminds us in the midst of this that we have a great hope. We've been born again to a living hope because of the resurrection of Christ it is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading. It's kept for heaven, it's kept in heaven for us so we can go through this with confidence. We're called to be holy. In other words, we've been set apart by God to be what he wants us to be. And then as Peter begins his discussion of being aliens... He lays out for us the structure that God has established within culture. And culture has to have structure or else it's nothing more than chaos. And he tells us we're to submit to 
governing authorities, and he goes into the discussion about that. He tells us that uh, how families are to be structured. He tells us how to work in the workplace. And then he tells us that we're going to suffer. Christ suffered. So are we. And yet it's within that paragraph that Peter writes, but, going through the suffering, but, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope, for the reason of the hope that is within you. Make a defense. This is what we're called to do. The particular Greek word that's used here is the word apologia, which doesn't at all mean that, hey, we tell people that we're sorry we're Christians, we're sorry that we offend you, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the English word from that Greek word is the word apologetics. Again, it means to defend the faith. It's a legal term that uh, the lawyer who makes the apology is literally defending us before the court so that those, tr those charges would be removed or taken away. So it's a legal term that talks about defending our faith apologetics. It involves explaining the main points of our faith. It involves that as believers we must know and understand what we believe and why we believe it. So Peter is talking to these aliens as they're traveling through this world and having to live as aliens within a structure, within a governing authority, within an employment structure, family structure, all these things, and yet not being of this world, but being aliens. And as we do this, when called upon, we're to make a defense of what we believe. Now, one of the things to keep in mind as we kind of work through our points, brothers and sisters, this in no way say only ordained men defend their faith. And when I talk about ordained men, you know, folks who've gone to seminary, they've been set aside by presbyteries, so forth and so on. No, the responsibility is for every believer to know their faith so that they can defend it when called upon. We have been called out of darkness into light for this purpose as we seek to stand for what we believe, Lord willing, articulating it humbly, thoughtfully, reasonably, and biblically. And please understand, when the Lord called us to himself, he didn't say, leave your mind out in the parking lot. We are to know what we believe. We are, when called upon, to stand up to be what the Lord wants us to be. Our lives are to be 
living examples of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the first phrase implies in terms of, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. We recognize that Christ is our king. We recognize that it is to him that we pledge allegiance. And as we seek to live our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ, our lives are going to be different because we're guided by the dictates of Scripture. And within that difference, we ought to stand out from the crowd around us. Remember, we're aliens. We're just traveling through. We're not of this world. And our lives are to reflect that. And if our lives reflect that, then questions are going to come up. And we're called upon to articulate what it means to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all our hearts, with all our souls, and all our minds. Again, the responsibility for every believer, not just the quote-unquote professionals, every believer to know the word and be able to articulate what it means to love the Lord, what it means to serve him. So this is the call that Peter lays before us. We're to be different. We're to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be what he wants us to be. And within that framework, be able to defend what we believe. As we think about that, a couple of observations come into play. Notice, as Peter finishes this particular phrase, and he says, the reason for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect, Paul, in Colossians chapter 4, tells us in verse 6 of chapter 4, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So that as we feel these questions, and they may even come across as challenges, they may even come across as, boy, you are so stupid to be, believe that kind of stuff. It is our responsibility because we're still dealing with image bearers of God. It is our responsibility to deal with them, as Peter says here, in terms of gentleness and kindness. And Paul tells us to deal with them graciously. So we're dealing with image bearers of God. And we have to learn how to address these challenges. We have to learn how to deal with them without losing our tempers. Without feeling like we're arrogant and we know the answers and you don't. 
and you're on your way to hell and I'm not? Well, keep in mind, brothers and sisters, we didn't earn the privilege of heaven. God in his grace has chosen us, has set us aside to be his people, to be his children. We did nothing to earn that. That is purely his grace and his grace alone. But we have been saved for service. And therefore, as we seek to impact the world in which we live, as we seek to give this reason for the hope that is within us, that we need to do it with gentleness, with respect, as we deal with the individual. It doesn't matter how the individual deals with us. We're not responsible for their actions or reactions. We're responsible for the way that we deal with them as we follow the mind of Christ. Remember, we're dealing with image bearers of God and brothers and sisters as long as they're alive, no matter how gross or arrogant or foul they may be. There's always the potential that they may come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. May we deal with them as image bearers of God. Another observation is that uh, as we address them, we need to address them not with our wisdom, but with the Word of God. Please understand. God in his providence, for whatever reason, has given us a written word. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is inspired by God, therefore profitable. It's for our benefit. Peter tells us in the midst of what was probably the most exciting existential experience anybody could have, Peter, James, and John, and it's interesting when you look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, when something special happened, who were the three disciples who were with him? Peter, James, and John. And so they're up on the mountain with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they see him transfigured. The glory of the Lord shines through this man, and out of the clouds they hear, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I can't imagine a greater existential experience. And yet Peter goes on to say, but we have something more sure. And that is, Scripture, as holy men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit to write exactly what God wanted written. So we come from Scripture. Practically, brothers and sisters, everybody has a final authority. Everybody. You can't, you can't have an approach to life with building 
into, some, into that system something that is your final authority. Ours is Scripture. And therefore, as we operate, we need to know the Word of God in such a way, again, using it graciously in such a way that the unbeliever is confronted with their problem, with their issue. And Lord willing, God will use the Word, not our glorious words, but the Word to bring about conversion. Keep in mind, Paul writing in the midst of history and the most powerful army in the world at that time was the Roman army. And the weapon that was the effective instrument by which God, by which the Roman army accomplished this was a short two-edged sword. Paul, when he talks about the believer getting ready for the daily battle, the daily affairs of life, and he has the Roman soldier putting on his gear, his shield, his belt, even his sandals and his helmet, all this, and taking up his sword, which Paul says is the scripture, is the word of God. And that soldier was going to use it to pierce the enemy. We're also told in the book of Hebrews that scripture pierces to the very depths of the heart. It's God's word. And we need to know how to use it. The Roman soldier had to train to prepare themselves. And I, I've often thought, and we, we have this problem in the churches too as well, it seems like, but I've often thought, using a two-edged sword, how many times did they cut each other up as they learned how to use it? Oh, how many times does the body of Christ cut each other up because we don't know how to use it. Scripture. Scripture is our final authority. Scripture is the only rule of faith and practice. Scripture and Scripture alone is the standard that is ours. That is the instrument that we must use as we seek to be what God wants us to be. Keep in mind as you seek to give the reason for the hope that is within you. Just observations. Understand that there is no standard. I say A, he says B, I say C, he says D. Realize Paul in the book of Acts, early church apologist, first century, could talk with the philosophers on Mars Hill about the truth of the scripture and then turn right around and sit on the beach mending nets talking about Christ. Part of our ability to defend the faith needs to be an awareness of the circumstances that are around us, awareness of with whom we're dealing, and know the scripture well enough that 
we can address where that person is. Again, it's our instrument. It's our weapon. A soldier in the days of Rome was not much good if he didn't have his weapon or if he didn't know how to use his weapon. We need to know how to use it. Also understand that apologetics is, is very flexible. In other words, it takes place in a multitude of environments. For example, Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion is an apologetic written to the king of France defending what a Christian believed. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest apologists in the 19th century, number of books in reference to defending the faith, miracles, mere Christianity, we could go on. But he also wrote a science fiction trilogy. And the third book in that science fiction trilogy, That Hideous Strength, is a story of basically world domination by man's government. In the front of the book, it actually speaks of another Tower of Babel. Okay? But within that book, you have a married couple who are the primary individuals in the entire book, and their marriage is struggling. Neither one is a Christian. Uh, they're both career-oriented, all these kind of things. The guy gets involved with the, the bad crowd because he wants to be a success and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and the lady, who's primarily at home, uh, gets involved with a maid who happens to be a Christian. And so in the midst of a story, Lewis confronts us with the reality of dealing with people to present the gospel and to see lives change. And the same thing happens with Mark, but in a more dramatic way. So at the beginning of the book, a shattered marriage which is heading for the rocks. And at the end of the book, as they've gone through this, she has her hand on the latch to walk into the wedding room to be reunited with her husband. A story, but one that tells us of the reality of what Christ does in terms of changing our lives. Another great apologetic was Francis Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live? What, back in the 70s? as he confronted us with the reality of Scripture, Scripture alone. You remember D. James Kennedy in his pamphlet that challenged us with, what would you say if God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? Francis Schaeffer again made the statement, if I had an hour to present a gospel, to present the gospel, 
I'd listen for 55 minutes first. Oftentimes, brothers and sisters, we have to earn our right to be heard. The reality of one's life, the reality of our love for others, even though they aren't very lovable. You remember the theme from Cheers? The show about that bar in Boston? Everybody knows my name. We're to be intensely personal when we enter into these apologetic situations. Not checking off another notch on my belt, but seeking to demonstrate the reality of love that has been poured out upon us because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, a love that we didn't deserve, a love that we couldn't earn, but a love that was given to us, the beauty of grace. And then the wonderful privilege, again, not because I'm earning credit, but because of what Christ has done in us, seeking to do that in the lives of others. The apologetic, as we defend the reason for the glorious hope that is within us. Hey, don't have to write a book. Don't have to prepare a movie series. Don't have to write a pamphlet. Guys, hey, let's get together, let's get together for coffee. That's a good question. Pray for George. I may have mentioned this the last time I'm down. Was down. He's struggling with how I'm dealing with the death of my wife. And he wants to know why can I have such confidence? Why can I have such hope? We're supposed to be getting together for lunch, but Satan puts things in the way, seems like. But he still asked me to give the reason for the hope that is within me. That's the Christian apologetic, brothers and sisters. As we seek to use the truth of Scripture and the relationships that God builds that allow us to enter into a person's life. A person who's asking a question. Why can you be that way? And again, be careful. Because it's the sword that provides the answer, not our wisdom. It's the sword, the Word of God. R.C. Sproul writes, we are called to proclaim and defend the faith. And we can do so knowing with full assurance that God's word will not return void. And that ultimately the Holy Spirit persuades, convicts, 
and brings new life. If we are faithful to the task of apologetics, the Spirit will use our testimony. We're aliens. We're just passing through. But we're passing through with a purpose. And yeah, hey, we're going to suffer. Peter tells us that. Because the world hates us. And yet, we're to treat them like image bearers of God as we seek to present a biblical defense of the faith. A biblical apologetic. Oh, brothers and sisters, may, may our love for the Lord Jesus Christ motivate us to grow in our knowledge of that sword that is effective that the Spirit uses to pierce to the very depths of the heart. And if by God's grace that person's life is changed, again, we don't get the credit. It's the Lord who did it. But then we get to disciple. And that's a whole other story. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you are the God who knows the end from the beginning. You're the Alpha to the Omega. You're the one who for some reason, some reason for when we look at the mirror, we can't imagine any. But the God who chose for himself a people and is equipping those people to be what he wants us to be. May we be faithful. For it's in the wonderful name of our great King that we pray. Amen.